Um, good to see everybody again. Week two of five in this little series um, through the first five chapters of, uh, of John's Gospel, um, titled the "My Own Personal Jesus." Obviously, a nick from the from the song. Uh, why don't we open with prayer? Gracious and heavenly Father, um, thank you again for this day, your uh, your day um, for this church, your church. And now, Lord, we pray that these words would be your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you know, I never really know how I'm going to start. So, probably, let's do it this way. Uh, There'll be a tie between Part A and Part B in the class, but but really in some ways, Part A is going to be sort of the principle, and then Part B is going to be the text work. Part A, the principle. Um, Your own personal Jesus, you back that up, we create... Uh, our own little Christ um, as a result of the fall, i.e. in our sinful nature, in our flesh, in the way that we don't see things correctly, we don't see things as they actually are. We have um, in our natural selves eyes that don't work and ears that don't hear. Um, We see things incorrectly, we hear things incorrectly. Perhaps you live with somebody who really you know very much, you know, doesn't see things and hear things. That's supposed to be funny. Um, (laughs) See or hear things correctly. Um, that's, that's natural. Just calling it natural is in fact a judgment. It's not, it's not good. It's not permission to, to, to leave it that way. Um, we uh, plead for the unnatural intervention of things. Uh, so part A, our own personal Jesus, your own personal Jesus, is trying to bring the things that are but which are hidden to some level of awareness, to, to the light as it were. Um, your own personal Jesus. We could ask then properly, what's um, uh, what's the law? What's the Moses, you might want to call it that? What's the Moses that we created? Uh, because if we can get a handle on that, what should, ought, or must am I a slave to? Am I bound to? And it could even be, you know, the law of tolerance. Um, doesn't have to be performance. Often is. Doesn't have to be. Um, probably do that more next week or the week after. Uh, but it could be the law of, of being a libertine. Um, the law of freedom. Um, as an ism, as one of my college professors used to call it, uh, that can even be the law to which we bend. And so we identify what's our Moses, and then we'll know what Christ we need. Um, way through to it, and then, uh, and then we're going to get to John 2, the great uh, chapter. We're not going to look at both parts, but the the part where Jesus changes water into wine and then he cleanses the temple. And a lot of people would see that as Jesus sort of establishing the terms, so to speak, of his ministry. That at the beginning of his ministry, his first advent, his first incarnation, he uh, he comes and what does he do? He uh, He changes water into wine and he cleanses the temple. And when he comes back again, his second advent for his final coming, uh, what's he going to do? He's going to cleanse the visible church. He's going to clean the temple again, set it aright. And then he's going to establish a wedding feast. He's going to establish a celebration, the final great supper of God. Um, So a lot of people see that kind of an out, a spiritual reading of John 2, where he's establishing the terms of his ministry. We're going to look at that and try to bring some Eucharistic tones into it. But in the first part, and a lot of this may even try to tail into some of Andrew's 
sermon, it was a good place. Um, our own personal Jesus, backing up, what's our, what's our personal Moses? What's the law under which we, we live? Think of it this way. What story do we often tell ourselves um, in order to make life bearable? This could be a big thing. It could be a little thing. Um, uh, what story do we create to make life bearable? Um, uh, it could be a big thing. It could be the story that we tell ourselves in order to accommodate, you know, this is the, the great extreme, but to accommodate, you know, something awful that happened when you were a child or when you were in your early 20s. It could be a much smaller thing, and it could be um, the story that we tell ourselves just to, uh, well, I was going to look at a clip here in a minute of a candid camera, uh, article when a bunch of people are standing the wrong way in an elevator. It's the story that we tell ourselves in order to um, either conform uh, to the to the herd, i.e. turn around the wrong way in the elevator, or uh, the story that we tell ourselves in order to justify the reason that we're not turning around and following the herd. So what stories do we tell ourselves? Um, can be transient, can be seasonal, can be you know deeply woven into our soul, can be something a little bit more surface. Some examples that I was thinking of, you know, perhaps you are one who swore you would never be, you know, X kind of parent. When I'm a parent, I'm never going to be that kind of, uh, of parent. I'm going to reason with my child and be really calm, and they're just going to sort of, you know, naturally respond to that, and they're going to follow along. This isn't me, of course. They're going to follow along and just say, oh, of course, you're so reasonable, you're so rational. You know, the way that you're presenting that to me, I'll just kind of fold right into that and, and be, be just who you want me to be. Maybe you swore you were going to be that kind of parent, and then you met your children, <laughs> and that didn't happen. Um, and now, you know, what you told yourself you were going to do, the ought and the actual, there's a big gulf between the two. You have to tell yourself a story to accommodate for that dissonance is what the psychologist would call it, for that, that, um, that gap between the ought and the actual. What I ought to be, what I thought I was going to be, but who I am. Or maybe it has to do to stay in the parenting vein. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be that kind of parent that uh, you know, follows my son around and, and takes him to you know, 16 different cities a year in order to, to play in his competitive team. I think that's the tail wagging the dog, et cetera, and so forth. But then three years later, you're like, well, you know, I have to accommodate. Well, it's complicated, you see. It's not as easy as what you think it would be. And now you're telling that story to who? To yourself. You're telling it out loud, but you're trying to rationalize, justify, those kinds of things. You're telling yourself out loud, it's just a stain, it's just a stain, it's just a stain. If you heard Andrew's story, uh, the, 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 the stain is screaming. It's crying out. It's saying, deal with me. Uh, and you're trying to uh, tell yourself a story that makes it okay. Andrew thought she was talking to him. It's just a stain. It's okay. But she was talking to herself. Reminds me of that story. Uh, this, you know, kind of connects. You see a, a haggard mom, um, four young children, sort of on her hip, you know, in the grocery store, and she's just kind of walking and almost in this trance. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to be gone in 15 minutes. Don't worry. Don't worry. Daddy's going to be home in two hours. And this other person's just looking. It's like, wow, what a, such patience. What a model of virtue. You know, they keep passing each other in the hall and the, uh, the places and two kids are fighting and one's pulling everything off. The sh it's okay. It's okay. And she's just absolutely non-reactive. And finally, this person goes up to her and says, ma'am, I just have to tell you, I'm just amazed 
at how calm you are. I mean, the way you talk to your children. I mean, I, I just know that if I was me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be nearly so calm. She looked at him with haggard eyes and was like, I'm, I'm not talking to them. I for, that was for me. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Daddy's going to be home in two hours. It's going to be okay. You know, we tell ourselves stories in order to, uh, to make it. Ramp it up. Um, you know, want to put a big category in it and kind of stay, you know, there's going to be a little bit of psychology in all this. Um, any form of what we might call rationalization, um, to put a theological word on it, justification. We justify my existence as a parent who takes their son to, you know, 16 cities a year in order to compete. Um, uh, justify. That's a, that's a theological word, to bring things to an even place. Um, all those are a form of what? A form of denial. What is denial? Denial is not seeing things as they actually are. Creating an accommodation for something other than it actually is. And the reformers really knew this. This was you know, like 300 years before Sigmund Freud came up with this idea of, of denial. But the reformers, um, quite a few of them, really latched on to this phrase. Um, a lot of us know it if you've read the book uh, on being a theologian of the cross by Gerhard Ferdi. Uh, the phrase is, uh, a true theologian calls a thing what it is. To be able to call a thing what it is, to not minimize it, a form of denial, to rationalize, to minimize, to compartmentalize, to kind of shrink it down so that it becomes manageable, i.e. so I can tell myself a story to accommodate its dissonance, um, or to maximize, um, to blow it out of proportion, to make yourself you know, a victim, or put yourself in the martyr's role, or to do something to make it other than what it is, a theologian will, a theologian of the cross in particular, will call a spade a spade, will call a thing what it is, uh, will recognize pain as pain, happiness as happiness, joy as joy, um, conflict as conflict, uh, uh, a simultaneous experience of saint and sinner, They'll call a spade a spade. I'm a complicated person. On the one hand, I'm justified by God. On the other hand, I rabidly seek to justify myself. The collision of those two, that's, um, that's the Christian life. Simmel Eustace, I didn't mean to go all here. Um, our little coffee mug outside, and then I'll shut up with this. Simmel Eustace at Peccator. That's the Christian life. Simultaneously saint and sinner. Trying to call a spade a spade and allowing... Uh, the, our tendencies to, to create stories, i.e. deny, uh, to bring all those to light and to be able to withstand the assault of the truth and call a spade a spade and recognize myself as, as a wretch that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this whole story, um, as we tell ourselves stories. Here's the, the video. Um, something called the, it's kind of fun. Of course, I picked these up on YouTube, and I may have, I don't know if I've shown these before or not. When I was a, a lot of y'all, you know, remember this. Um, back when I was in school, when we were in school, remember the reel-to-reel -reel projectors? When you saw that in the room, you walked in, you were like, yes. so, you know, you're just so happy because the lights were going to go off, and it was going to be like, okay. And it's like, you know, Mr. Grumble Hands, you know, and all that sort of stuff. It's, that's, it's, it's that era, you can tell. At least one of them is. Uh, it's kind of got that grainy sort of film feel. 
Uh, but back in the 50s, um, a psychologist named uh, Ash, I can't remember his first name, devised this uh, really interesting experiment. It still holds. It's not quite the same as it is now. I think that has something to do with social media and uh, the ubiquity of, of, uh, of phones and all that stuff. But let's just watch this. Um, and it's still, well, you tell me. You tell me if you think this still has merit as a uh, aspect of human nature. A volunteer is told that he's taking part in a visual perception test. Thank you. What he doesn't know is that the other participants are actors, and he's the only person taking part in the real test, which is actually about group conformity. The experiment you'll be taking part in today involves the perception of line great? length. The task will be simply to look at the line here on the left and indicate which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. So, for example... The actors have been told to match the wrong lines. The volunteer will be monitored to see if he gives the correct answer or if he goes along with the opinion of the group and gives the wrong answer. In the first test, the correct answer is two. Uh, one. 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 Two. One. The ASH experiment has been repeated many times and the results have been uh, supported again and again. We will conform to the group. Again, we're very social creatures. We're very much aware of what the people around us think. Uh, we want to be liked, we don't want to be seen to rock the boat, so we will go along with the group. Even if we don't believe what people are saying, we still go along. One. 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 Group dynamics is one of the most powerful forces in human psychology. Uh, one. One. True or false? What do y'all think? You buy it? Not so much. One. <laughs> Just um, yeah, I, I do. I buy it. Um, would it be different now? It might. Um, and it's not everybody. This isn't a law of human nature. Well, I think an aspect of it is. Um, and even in the research, they would do this beforehand. Uh, and so there's not a group. And the guy looks at the seven cards, the 15 cards, or whatever. And, and not surprisingly, you know, less than 1% error rate. You can tell that the sample line, and you'd say one, next card, three, next card, two, and you get them all right. Then you introduce a group to it with, you know, sample size of, I don't know, 100 different people or so. And then somewhere around 75% uh, of the people from the third time forward, after, say, eight rounds, about two-thirds to three-quarters of the people would, uh, would answer at least half the time in the way that the group did the way that what they call the Confederates did. Now that leaves 25% to 33% that didn't, but even the ones that aren't conformist, and there might be several of us in the room, I think I might be that way, I don't know. I'm still got to tell myself a story. I'm still now actively wondering, what's up with all these people? You know, and I've got to sort of create an accommodation to the reason that these other six people are idiots <laughs> and aren't calling a spade a spade. It's obvious. Or 
um, in other situations because well, this is um, a really sterile environment. He even knew he was a part of a psychological experiment. Sort of his, his defenses are up and it's very concrete, very clear. A single line which is the um, standard and then three choices. Real life, how often do we get something that concrete? What about when it becomes much more ambiguous with so many more variables? like, you know, the refrain that happened across the board in 1945 when the Allies came and liberated all of the concentration camps, all of which were within a mile or two from a city, you know, because it had to have a, uh, a city, a structure to support, you know, this, this complex. And what did they hear almost univocally from all of the, the townsfolk? You know, just normal people, just like you and just like me. We didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know. And the Allies were incensed because they were like, how could you not know? I mean, you smelled the smoke. And what did they do? They told themselves a story to accommodate this awful, horrific atrocity. You know, that's, that's, a, that's, an, that's an extreme. Sure it is. But the extremes do what? They clarify things. When you go out to the polls, you see things more clearly. Remember, call a spade a spade. We use that and realize you know, that's, that's what it means to live in an ambiguous world with lots of things coming at you, where at any given point in time, I'm not nearly as aware of things as I think I am. Last piece. I just was rereading David Brooks' Social Animal. This is completely off the cuff, so I'm going to get some of this wrong. Um, you know, talking about political parties, for instance, um, you know, how, how do most of us identify with a political party, um, Democrat or Republican? Uh, most of us do it either in reaction or proaction to what we grew up with, and we pick it long before we, we, we deal with, with issues, um, long before we deal with the agenda. In other words, in a lot of different ways they do it, and again, I haven't really looked at this, uh, so this is off the cuff. You know, if you want to label yourself as a Republican, you're a Republican first, and then you're a believer in limited government second, not the other way around. Um, you, you call yourself a Democrat first, and then you um, come to believe and orient yourself around the values of, of social good and social, social capital second. Um, we think it's the other way around, that I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat because this is what I believe in. And it's more of the opposite. Um, we accommodate ourselves incessantly. So any comments or thoughts? Just another way of asking what your personal Jesus is. Because when you can recognize the tendency not to see things as they actually are, um, we then realize that, okay, this orienting principle, this operating system, as I called it yesterday, that's my new Moses. That's my, that's my artificial Moses, my personal Moses. And then... From that, I have to be delivered, and I create a personal Jesus, someone who takes me where I want to go, or someone who redeems me from the person that I know I should be, but somehow I'm not. Any comments or thoughts? And then we're going to get into the text. The ash experiment. Um, I'm not going to show the elevator part. That's a funnier way of, of looking at it. Um, all sorts of ways. Yeah. John?
That's right. Amen. And, um, and I think to me that's good that we wrestle with that because it says it's not about this point in time per se. It's that relationship we're trying to build. Because the Jesus I know now was that the Jesus I was praying to 40 years ago. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's really sort of the, the thank you kind of an umbrella in which I want to put this whole short series. And it's certainly a theme that I sort of lean into often. Uh, put ourselves in the passive tense. Uh, if, if I realize that I have created my own personal Jesus, then I can reorient myself in the proper position. Because if I've created, I'm in the position of subject, I'm in the position of creator, and then I realize that that's entirely the inversion of... Uh, of the way things are, remember, call a spade a spade, I'm in the position of hearer, I'm in the position of listener, I'm in the position of creature, I'm in the position, uh, the passive position, where far more I am known by Christ than I know him, or at least that's the way it begins. I love because I am first loved. I know Christ because I am first known by him. So that's, that's exactly right. It's then the you know, trying to shatter my personal Jesus and actually just be known by the Lord. So. Yeah, I think it's human nature to be to want control over your own security. And denial is the great way to make you feel comfortable. Yeah, that's right. And I want to sort of elevate denial a little bit to say, well, of course. You know, of course denial is a real thing. It's not what we normally think it is. We think of denial as a... Well, it's one of the, the stages of grief that we hear about. And a lot of times I think it's very confusing. It's like, you know, gosh, you know, I've lost people and, you know, no people that do. And I never just like said, nope, she's not dead. Nope, she's not dead. Nope, he's not dead. You know, that's not, that's not what it is. It's, uh, it's an accommodation of, well, now she's, eh, what's an example of that? Um, how we accommodate the loss, how we accommodate our lives to the place that's now empty. Um, and sometimes that's true. You know, I'll see her again. I'll be with him. He's in a better place. Uh, sometimes, you know, I don't want to step on a toe here. Sometimes we do it in a slightly different way where we tell ourselves a story. Well, she's with me now and she's watching me and now she's going to, to make sure I do okay. Or, you know, he would want us to have fun, and so I'm going to go out and, uh, and sort of carpe diem, like Dead Poet Society or something like that. You know, the transcendentalist, you know, me invoke them as my personal Jesus and live life in compensation for what I wasn't when he was alive, and now I'll be that. That's denial. I want to say, well, of course. You know, until that's raised and brought out into the middle, of course we're going to do that. Um, then we see things as they are actually. And, and, and a different orientation, a different operating system takes over. Let me engage the text just because that's always my first priority. So here's John 2, the wedding at Cana. Um, thank you, Cindy. Um, again, familiar story, um, relatively straightforward. Uh, I'll read and make a few comments, and then I'm going to do something which I don't normally do. I'm going to bounce this around 
different parts of the scripture, um, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Revelation, and John. Uh, Ali Simpson, I hope. So here's John 2. Um, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited. Um, That's just interesting right there. I mean, just it gives this place that Jesus was also invited to the wedding. Well, whoever Jesus is, we don't normally think of him getting a, you know, an Evite or something like that, or you know, say, "Hey, I hope you can come." You know, here it is. Uh, but of course he was. I mean, there he is. Uh, Joseph is almost certainly dead by now. Um, Mary's. Uh, we can read into this just a little bit. And there's a place in Mark where you can tell that. Normally, you would say, "Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, Jesus bar Joseph?" And they don't say that. Isn't that Jesus, the son of Mary? You would say that only if the father is dead. Um, uh, and so we can reasonably assume that Joseph had, had passed away by now. had died. Um, and now Jesus and Mary uh, were invited to this wedding. Um, uh, so in verse 2, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Um, so Mary, it seems, has some part in, you know, the hospitality, the catering, the provision for the, uh, for the wedding. And this is a, a dissonant experience for Mary. Um, and, uh, and as I read it, never thought of it before, I was like, aha, personal Jesus, right there. I mean, that's totally me. You know, she's got this responsibility. She's just part of the, the people that are putting the wine on. It's like, Jesus, they don't have any more wine. You know, whether he's appealing, she's appealing to her as her son or as the living God, who knows. But at this point, it's just a prayer. You know, Lord, please let there be a parking space. You know, my personal Jesus provides for those kinds of needs. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but here's Mary right there turning it that way, doing a bargain. Lord, please let this happen and then is the implicit extension. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is introducing some language that he uses a lot. First, woman, um, not necessarily that, even the way I just sort of inflected it, not necessarily uh, uh, implying any kind of distance. Because when do we hear this again? When Jesus is on the cross and he turns to Mary and he says, Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Um, There is an endearment, almost like a doña. Um, in Italian or Spanish, or you know, Madame or something like that. Um, there's a, there is, a, there, there's some respect that's, that can plainly be there. But, but woman, my hour has not yet come. The hour of deliverance, the hour of the cross. Um, and then a huge gap because then it continues that his mother said to his servants, "Do whatever he tells you." So something happened in the interim, or she just went forward, and and knowing uh, uh, the distinction between. Well, just as Don Carson, um, a New Testament comment, commentator, would say, when Mary appealed to him at, in a human relationship as a mother to a son, uh, she was rebuked. But when she appealed to him as a believer to the living God, uh, her prayer was granted. Do whatever he tells you to do. And now there were six stone jars filled there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So these six stone jars, they're very, they're very specifically set out in Leviticus um, as, as jars for purification. 
stone as opposed to earth because stone more impermeable, the, the water doesn't get dirty, and so that was part of the cleansing, the purification ritual. Um, certainly there at a wedding, you would come in and you would wash your hands, wash your feet, and be symbolically purified in order to allow to, uh, to eat the food and to be a part of the Jewish rites of marriage, etc. and so forth. And so they're there. And Jesus says, get those, those purifying pots, 20, 30 gallons, 180 gallons uh, capacity. He says, draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew it, the water knew. There's great drama here. Um, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Can you imagine the servants? They're like... <laughs> um, and he said to him, Everybody serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, i.e. when they were drunk, and you can't tell what you're drinking, it's just kind of you know boxed swill as opposed to really fine Bordeaux. Um, when they drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed him. And so here... Jesus is taking the old and he's putting in the new. He's taking out the old system of, um, of, uh, of say, the Jewish purification rituals, the law, um, and he's restating it with his own, own stamp. He's saying this is the way it's going to be from here forward. Um, so now, I want to really sort of draw this up and keep um, wine sort of on the table, as it were. Uh, the Eucharist aspect, take eat, this is my body, drink, this is my blood. This is all a prefigurement to it as well. The fine wine, the scriptures are going to speak to this in two ways, where it speaks uh, oftentimes, especially Isaiah, that come, uh, come the final time when the great supper of God and all are gathered, uh, the wine will be exceedingly good. Uh, and Jesus has that in mind here when he changes the wine to the fine wine, not just any wine, but a very fine wine, exceedingly good. Take and drink this, for this is my blood shed for you, exceedingly good. So we've got all that. We're going to contrast that to where the scriptures also, somewhat in a very grotesque way, um, talk about other suppers of God where... Uh, If we don't partake in the sacrificial feast, we in fact are the feast, and we are um, we ourselves, our bodies, our blood are are taken and eaten by um, by the birds of God and some others. So here's here's where we're heading around. Let me, let me bend this around. In Leviticus, for instance, uh, the uh, the great inversion of the way that things normally are, or the way, the way they should be, where we eat the fruit of the vine and we uh, we go forth, are fruitful, there's that aspect of it as well, and we multiply and we have families, and that's all inverted. And now families are drawn against one another, i.e. Cain and Abel, the first family, did not end well, um, did not become fruitful and multiply, they became fruitful and divisive, fruitful and murderous, fratricide. Uh, and Leviticus goes, Leviticus goes so far that are the, the image of turning in ourselves, becoming so self-consumed, we in fact consume our own children. Gross. Then I will do this to you. This is the judgment of God. I will visit you with panic and a wasting disease and a fever that will consume your eyes and make your heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. Definitely a Genesis 3 there. 
uh, and I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall, be, and you shall flee when none pursue you. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy the high places and cut down the incense altars, altars and cast the dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And that's not the only time he says something like that. Um, Leviticus 26. Um, and then uh, in Ezekiel 39, the people under judgment actually become the meal. Um, apart from God, uh, uh, under the proper judgment of the law, we eat ourselves, we eat our children, we ourselves are eaten. This is kind of gross. But then he's going to contrast that and say, I'm going to give you the punchline. There's a smoking gun. The judgment of God <laughs> fired. And the gun is smoking. And we look up and we realize there was a bullet fired. I see the smoke, and the judgment that was intended for me now falls on him. Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is abrasive when you think about it. Um, you will have no part of me. We either partake in the great Eucharist, the Holy Supper of God, and find peace, or we ourselves are the great supper of God. Ezekiel 39. I didn't make this stuff up. Ezekiel 39. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast which I am preparing for you, the birds of God, the great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat the flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. You shall eat fat until you are filled, and drink blood until you are drunk at the sacrificial, sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And then John in his revelation, which we looked at in, um, in August, said this, And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, and eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and the riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great, those who were a part of the army of the beast. And the beast was then captured, and with it the false prophet, in the presence of all he had done by the signs in which he deceived those who received its mark. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with his flesh. So here, the scriptures really draw this really grotesque, visceral image of eating flesh and drinking blood. Um, all this is in set, you know, in the, as, a, as the background image to the great wine because the, the, uh, the bridge, John 6, um, that the, the, the blood becomes wine. Unless you eat, John says in John 6, unless you eat the flesh of man, uh, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Uh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For the flesh, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, if you're like me at this point, you're like, where's he going? This is really gross. Um, and you would be normal, because that's in John 6. And the people that heard this, what was their reaction? Uh, they recoiled. 
in John 6, 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. It's gross. Who can listen to it? They said. And then six verses later, what's their response? After they recoiled, they left. After this, many of his disciples, his disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus doesn't shy away. Look, there's either the great supper of God where you will be eaten or you can eat me. Judgment is real. You, the, the, the birds of the air, the, the birds of God, will, will gorge on your flesh and get fat, or you will eat me. This is my blood shed for you. Uh, this is my body broken for you. And then he transforms all that, the weight of that judgment, of the smoking gun, of calling a spade a spade and realizing that's, that's it. There is judgment. I can create stories to try to minimize this, to compartmentalize it, to somehow uh, accommodate myself to this hard saying, understatement of the year, as it says in John 6.60, where I can let the other parts of the scripture begin to wash over me. It's not just a magic trick, this wedding at Cana. Um, he's launching uh, forth the way, the revelation, that will fulfill all the scriptures, including these really visceral bloody, grotesque images. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 25, wonderful words. On this mountain, prefiguring Calvary, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make all for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine. That's his flesh and his blood. But now it's rich food and it's well-aged wine, the kind of wine that was transformed from the purification pots and then was brought forth at the end of the wedding. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And then lastly, Isaiah 55. Um, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Uh, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he may be near. Um, and then to end with that idea of seek the Lord while he may be found, just a last little piece. I'll do this briefly and we can stay afterwards and talk if you want. Um, picture which we've seen several times in my classes um, by Lucas Cranach, one of the Reformation artists, one of the good friends of Martin Luther. Over here on our right, that's Luther um, preaching, crucified Christ in the middle in the congregation on our left. Um, let me turn that off. Uh, when you look closely at it, you realize that the congregation is not looking at Luther, and Luther is not looking at the congregation. Everybody's, or at least Luther, is pointing to Christ with his hand on the Bible. And then some in the congregation are looking all over the place. Um, here's Luther, as you can see, hand on the Bible, pointing not to the people, but to Christ, saying, Resolve to know no one except him and Christ crucified. Seek the Lord where he may be found. Um, here are some of the people. Look at it, it's interesting. Most of them, are, their eyes are definitely fixed on the cross. A few others, like this one, right in the middle. Um, this woman turning away. You get the man up there who's a little bit angry. You get some ambivalence. This is, this is theology painted. This is the response of, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have any part of me. So here's the last little piece. I'm no sort of art guy, as I've said several times. I'm becoming more and more fascinated with it in my old age. All this space 
empty space. That's what really struck me this week because I was thinking about this piece. I've looked at this for pretty closely for 10 or 15 years now. Never thought about the space. Well, there it is. This is good theology. Uh, a theologian calls a thing what it is. Uh, let's, let's, let's avoid telling ourselves the stories, the stories that are forms of denial. Uh, and, and, and consider the space. What's the space? Um, to resolve to know no one except Christ and him crucified, to seek the Lord where he may be found, the task of preaching, the task of, of, of attending to the scriptures, of asking yourself the question, who am I actually? Not who do I think I am, but who am I actually? And who is the Lord actually? Not, not my personal Jesus, but who is he actually? That's been the collapsing of the space, where those two things begin to meet, where I know who I am, who God is, and what God has done. Christ crucified in the middle. The proclamation that all that's in here, Christ is saying, Luther is saying, the Bible is Christ, the Word of God. Uh, and that's the, the sum of the Word, is the, uh, the crucifixion, and by shorthand, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, that's an offensive word. As in John 6:60, and you can see the people, some looking away, some angry. This is a hard saying. And many of his disciples, from that point forward, no longer followed him. Uh, so I'll stop. I'll leave it open a little bit, you know, tag into other parts of the, the, uh, the series. Dealing with the space, the massive amount of space, because there's more space than not in this painting. Um, and it's actually sort of a, an altarpiece, and so it's about probably eight feet wide. And so the space is, uh, is very known. Um, so I'm over. Uh, why don't I pray since I'm over, but if you want to stay and interact with this, I'd be happy to. Um, Lord, come correct me as I threw a lot out in a short amount of time. Um, correct me where I'm wrong. Strengthen any part where, uh, where your word is, uh, is known. May we resolve to seek you while you may be found and where you may be found um, as the one who reveals all things as they actually are. Come, merciful Lord, and by the grace of being able to partake of your, uh, your body and blood broken and shed for us that we may have peace, um, and have it in abundance as rich food and fine wine. Lord, come in Jesus' name. Amen.